0: Visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Welcome back, Elevate, to the best night of the week. We are here for one reason and one reason only. Our lives are for one reason and one reason only. Y'all remember what that is. We are to here to elevate! Jesus! There we go. Man, you guys are awesome. Well done. Well done, that side of the room. All right, you guys ready? We're here for one purpose. We are here to elevate Jesus. We're here, and we live and exist and breathe to do what? Elevate Jesus. We're here to elevate Jesus. Are you guys ready? We live and exist to elevate Jesus! Awesome, awesome. Let's do this together. Elevate Jesus! Man, what a God we serve. Thank you guys for coming tonight. It is a pleasure to worship with y'all. And we are digging in and continuing the next week in our series. We are not just studying what's in the Bible. We are studying how the Bible came together. How did these books coalesce together? Who wrote them? And it's a series that I hope that will help us give value and weight to what we have often taken for granted. These are God's words. The Bible gives us many analogies to relate to us how important God's words are. Some of those analogies are law, seed, a mirror, water, an anchor, fire, sword, bread, a lamp, a hammer. Milk, gold, honey, rain, and snow. Maybe, maybe where you're at right now in your life, maybe one of these perfectly apply. Lord, I really need your light right now. I need a hammer to break through some things in my life. Oh, Lord, I love your word. It is so sweet like honey. Where are you right now? Because God's word can meet you where you're at. God's word has two purposes. The first purpose is to give God glory. And you could end right there. And that would be enough. But because of his love for us and his grace, his word also is to reveal who he is to us so that by knowing him, we can be saved. When I was a kid, I was probably eight, nine years old when my grandparents moved into the house next to my family, which was awesome. They were finally close by. And my grandfather was a Marine in World War II. And you could tell by the way he stood. He wasn't really, he didn't talk very much. He had bad hearing, probably from explosions and stuff. But he was actually on the first mission in, the first wave of Marines, that was him. And he never talked about his experiences. You could never ask him questions. He would just shut down I have no idea what he went through or what he saw. But one of the things that my grandmother and I had was a book that the military gave him, which was kind of like a yearbook of his platoon. And I remember flipping through it and just being awestruck, like, hey, there's this picture, all faded and it looks so different. And I remember that my grandmother had actually highlighted, there was a map and it showed the three routes that the Marines took and she highlighted his route. This is how he went in, the first boots on shore. And I was just so proud of him. And by the time it was in my hands, this book was already easily 50 years old. And since then, I called my mom today, she doesn't even remember that book. Since his dying and my grandmother's passing away, since they moved a couple times and my parents moved a couple times, this book has just vanished. It's gone. We're looking at God's word that was infinitely more valuable than just a marine yearbook. The fact that it lasted longer than 50 years, that it actually lasted 3,500 years, it's just awe-inspiring. It had to be the hand of God that would move this thing down through the centuries, through generations, through families, through wars and exiles and slavery and be given to us. First Peter 1, 20-21, we read this last week and it sets the groundwork and it's talking about the Bible itself. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There's nothing in the Bible that came up from someone's mind that they just invented it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so whenever we talk about Scripture or we talk about books of the Bible that have authority, what we are saying is that they are the words of God. They are what God has given us to reveal himself and to be a model for how we should live. And the greatest, aside from his own glory, is that we could come to salvation through knowing these words. It is has authority for our lives. It is God's words. And the fancy way of saying that these are the collected books of God's word is using the fancy word canon. It's one less N than the boom Gun. cannon c-a-n-o-n and in greek it means a reed or a stalk or a stick a plant stalk or a reed or a stick and this was they would cut a reed and this length would represent the length they would use to build an entire structure if they wanted to build a house they would need to have one measurement by which the whole house was equal does that make sense they would take one canon, and they would build temples, and they would build walls, and they would build huge structures, but they would, all the workers would refer back to this length. So when we talk about the Bible, and we call it a canon, it becomes a measurement, a ruler for our lives. When we speak of the Christian canon, we're referring to those list of books which Orthodox Christianity recognizes as inspired, authoritative words of God. That is our Bible. Now, all Christian faiths agree on 27 books in the New Testament. Whether you're Roman Catholic or you're Protestant or Eastern Orthodox, we all agree on the 27 Bible books in the New Testament. And we'll get to that next week of how those came together. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament, things are a little bit different. We have 39 books in our Protestant Bible. The Catholics have 12 more books than that. And the Eastern Orthodox have three more on top of those 12. And again, later tonight we'll talk about why that is. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how did we get the Bible. I don't have a physical one. I've got my electronic one. How did we get the Bible? How did it come into our hands? The short version summed up that as the ink of John's quill dried on the leather, the heavens opened, and with light and angels, a King James leather-bound Bible descended from heaven, and that's what we've been using ever since. Okay, that's obviously not how it came together. The other way that people try to conceive of the Bible coming together is that there were all these hundreds of equally authoritative books, and this, Council of people wanted to manipulate people, so they pick and chose their favorite books and they put those together so that they could run the world with them or something. And that is equally not how things came together. So let's jump in. Let's take a look at scripture. The Old Testament canon, your Genesis through Malachi, which is arranged differently in the Hebrew Bible, but it's all the same books, are called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. Can y'all say that Tanakh? You kind of have to clear your throat at the end. The T in Tanakh represents the Torah, which is the law. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. The N in Tanakh represents the Nabi'im, which means the prophets. That's Joshua through Second Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the major and minor prophets, and the Kh of the Tanakh represent Ruth, the poetry, the wisdom. And then those books that come after the Babylonian exile, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, 1 and 2nd Chronicles. And you can see these written in the New Testament. Jesus and the disciples will refer back to the Law and the Prophets. That is the Tanakh that they're referring to, those books of the Old Testament. And it was written mainly in Hebrew. Some portions were in Aramaic. And because there was no printer, there's no printing press or copy machines, up until A.D. 1455, it was always handwritten, again and again and again, passed down. So for 3,000 years, the words of the Bible were handwritten, copied by Jewish scribes. And these Jewish scribes were hardcore intense about how they would copy the Bible. They had really strict rules, like if on this big sheet of, of leather or vellum or whatever they were using, if you made more than three mistakes, like, oop, I sneezed. Or I misspelled this word, more than three mistakes, you scrap the whole thing and you start over again. Then, after you finished, they would actually count the letters and the words in every single line, vertically, horizontally, to make sure that it was equal to the number of letters and words that were supposed to be on the page, to make sure that they got it exactly right. It was chiseled on stone, it was scratched in clay, it was written on leather. This is the Bible that we're talking about. Let's see who was paying attention last week. Who was the first to write anything, any portion of the Bible? Who was the first person who wrote some words of it? Joel, hey, you were paying attention last week. Congratulations. But it's not 100% right. I was summing up. Would you guys like to see who wrote the very first words of the Bible? Exodus 31, verse 18. Just like everything else, just like creation itself, everything begins with God. Exodus 31.18, Moses has spent this time up in the mountain 40 days with God. God gave him the, the Ten Commandments, and it says this, When Yahweh finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Jump forward another chapter. Exodus 32, 15 through 16, Moses turned and went down the mountain and the two tablets of the covenant law were in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God and it was engraved on the tablets. The Bible began with God. And this was the basis. These 10 commandments were the basis of the rest of the law that God would give them. They encompassed everything of how to relate to God, how to relate to your neighbor, and how to relate to society as a whole. And they're pretty simple. They're the Ten Commandments. But I don't know if you have ever noticed this before, but if you ever com- compared the Ten Commandments to say the Code of Hammurabi or the Egyptian pharaohs and their laws or anything, you're going to notice something that's very, very different. It opens up as any good religion might. The first two commands are about Honoring God and loving Him first, and not having any other idols, you know, aside from Him. And then it talks about how you relate to people. But if you get all the way to the end, Commandment number ten is very, very interesting. Because Commandment number ten tells us that we are not to covet our neighbor's stuff. You don't wish that you had their wife or husband. You don't wish that you had their car or donkey or whatever, whatever age you're living in. Do not covet. But coveting has nothing to do with what's external. Every other code, every other law has to do with don't steal people's stuff. Don't be hurting people. All of a sudden, in the very last commandment, God takes it from the external and he takes it to the human heart. I judge the inside. I know every thought of men. I see. This separates God's law from every other ancient law that we have found. And God continued to speak to Moses and give him the law, the first five books of the Bible, or a majority of them. At Sinai, at this Mount Sinai where God had brought the Israelites, hope you were paying attention last week, God gave them a culture. And it was a culture different than anybody else that was on the face of the earth. And after 40 days of being with God, Moses sat down and wrote what we see as the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites. These were the guys who kept all the worship going at the tabernacle. Who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the very Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. Ooh. It remains as a witness so that at any point if you start to sin, this thing is a glaring mirror pointing out that we need to get back to the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 1-3. So God says, write it down. The second thing that God tells Moses about his law, about his word, is this. Deuteronomy 6, 1-3. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that Yahweh your God directed me to teach you, to observe, this is Moses speaking, in case you didn't know, in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children and their children, after them might fear Yahweh your God for as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and all of his commands that I give you, and that you may enjoy long life. So write the words down. Number two, pass the words down. Make sure that your children know this stuff, as well as you do. Make sure you've taught them so well that their children know and their children and their children. So that, verse 3, hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Write it down. Pass it down. Obey it. This is the foundation of God's word. And so they kept God's word fresh in their memories. Every seven years, they were instructed to get everyone together and read God's word aloud to everyone. Can you imagine that church service? And we complained about a 45-minute sermon. And they're like, oh no, see Genesis 1? We're going all the way, baby. Hope you brought snacks. They read it aloud to the nation every seven years. Further, They would read it aloud at big occasions. If they won some sort of battle or they had some great thing happen to their nation, they're like, stop, we're going to read the words of God. And then sections of God's Word were taught every Sabbath, every version of their Sunday and Sunday services and explained to people. These books, just like how the first one, those words were taken and they were put in the tabernacle next to the Ark of the Covenant, these books were preserved. They were set up, is the way the Bible uses it. They were set up in the tabernacle, and then they would be set up in the temple. And beginning with Samuel, who begins the tradition of the prophets, where God is speaking through men to his people. Whenever they knew that they knew that these were God's words, they would take that and they would put it with the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Torah, the law. They would put it with that in the tabernacle, in the temple. They would save it. They would preserve it and protect it. And these scrolls could last hundreds and hundreds of years for how they would preserve them. And so beginning with Samuel, you have this prophetic activity that God would send prophets. And those prophets would write down the words of God. And as Israel began to slip into sin, they got the promised land. They got the big nation. They got all the promises. And yet it took almost no time at all because they didn't pass it down. and They didn't obey it. Israel started slipping into sin. And I'm, I'm not talking about like, oh, they started stealing from each other. They told lies to their mommy. I mean like they were burning babies alive and they're like throwing themselves um, and cutting themselves to f- false gods. It was terrible. And so as they slipped further and further into wickedness and into sin, God would send these prophets and the prophets would speak out against Israel and tell them to come back, turn back, come back to the Lord. And they would write these prophecies down, and then they would take them in the written form, and they would send them across the country so they could be declared in all the towns, and they'd be posted up in the town square for everyone to see. And these things circulated around. And they're always kind of on the move, these scrolls. Nothing was ever really attached to, it, to each other. They just sort of circulated. And eventually, after a whole lot of debate and, and uh, time and care, those might be added to this collection in the tabernacle or the temple. Any time that God would speak and say, thus says the Lord, it was an indicator that he was standing on his own divine authority, and they took it very seriously. And any time that they added to this collection, it it had national implications because if God spoke it, the whole nation needs to change. And so it was handled very delicately, what they added to this collection. Hezekiah, the king in Judah in about the 8th century, it's the 700s B.C., is believed by historians to start gathering some of those scrolls and putting them together. And then this awful thing happens. Israel slash Judah slips so far into their sin that they absolutely lost the book of the law. Gone from existence. The temple gets used for pagan idols until the temple isn't even used anymore. And generation after generation after generation is worshiping these idols and doing these sick, awful things. Until this one king, who becomes a king at eight years old, has this heart after God. And he, he decides that, hey, he gets priests together. And he's like, we're going to renovate the temple. We're going to get the nation back on track. And this priest named Hilkiah finds this book that had been lost, this book of the law. And Hosea goes crazy. He starts smashing idols and going through the land and burning down altars. He starts instituting the book of the law again everywhere. He has this big, giant Passover celebration and totally gets Judah back on track. It was lost for who knows how many years. Just like my grandfather's marine book, just gone. We don't even know where it is. That was the law. They couldn't follow it if they couldn't read it. They couldn't obey it if it wasn't passed down. And so Hosea is believed to also be one of the kings that gathered. Under him, the book of Judges was probably put together and collected to that. And again, after Hosea, more and more bad kings ruled. More and more did they slip into sin and into wickedness. And during this whole time, king after king after king, they had national historians that would write down the big events. They would write down the lives of the kings. And these were, were called the book of the Acts of Solomon, The book of the Chronicles of Kings of Israel and the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And those are going to become important later in case you didn't already kind of pick up on that. Mm, Let's see where they're going with this. And after centuries of sin and prophets sent by God to confront their sin, God punished the Israelites. He sent Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar to come in and wipe out the nation. The walls, the cities, everything was gone. And worst of all, the temple of God the temple that God had honored with his manifest presence was wiped out. No stone left on top of another. And all the survivors were drugged into slavery in Babylon on the other side of the world. And get this. What's terrible for them was actually very, very good for the creation of the Old Testament canon, for the Hebrew Bible. Because while they're in slavery in Babylon, two things happened. One, they started asking God, God, why are we here? Why did you do this? And they started searching scriptures. And they started seeking to find those prophetic works. They started seeking to find the law, Joshua, Judges. And the second thing is while they're stuck in Babylonian slavery, they wanted to fight to keep their national and their spiritual identity. What makes us Israelites? Where do you find your identity? So they started seeking and finding and pulling together, and new writings were all based on who they were, what God had told them through all this time, so that they could answer those questions. And if you read through the historical books, you can see over and over and over again, it answers that question, why are we here? And authors started to write based on those earlier historians' writings, which is where we get First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And after 70 years in exile, Persia comes and conquers Babylon. And the Persian king, King Cyrus, who was, and I found out this this past couple of weeks, King Cyrus was actually named in Isaiah several hundred years before he was born that King Cyrus would be the one to set them free. God, it's just awesome. King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. And King Cyrus is like, who are all these people? <laughs> they can go. And he signs the Edict of Cyrus and allows the Jews, the Israelites, to go home to their promised land. Now, he didn't set them free. They were still under the thumb of Persia, but they could go home. They still had to pay tribute. They were still, you know, under that government. But they could go home. They started rebuilding the temple. And under 57 years later, this guy named Ezra comes on the scene. And he travels and brings a second wave of Israelites home. And he was a priest, and he was hungry after the word of God. And so he gets back to the temple, and he sees that the temple, which is newly built, is now falling into disrepair. So he sets up temple worship again. He gets the law reinstated, and it was Ezra that begins to really collect all those books that were circulating through the times before the Babylonian exile and the times in Babylonian exile. And he did a majority of the work for us. And he sets up a sacrificial system. Now, during the life of Ezra, Ezra... God sent two more prophets. There were the prophet Zechariah and Malachi, and both of them called the people out on sin, and both of them pointed towards a future when God himself would deal with sin once and forever. And then another strange thing happens. God stops speaking. After Zechariah, after Malachi, after Ezra dies, God stops speaking for 400 years. There's no prophetic word. They're, the Jews, the Israelites, are just going off tradition. Two things happen during this 400-year time. Actually, three. The first is that Greece, under Alexander the Great, comes and conquers Persia. And as he conquers Persia, he inherits everything that Persia owns, also known as Israel. And when Alexander the Great dies, he divides up his land... Across his generals. And the general that received the land that included Israel was this terrible, terrible guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, or also known as Antiochus IV. And this guy was awful. And he immediately started to oppress the Israelites. The second thing that happens during this 400 year gap is that just like if the US government is minting a certain kind of coin, They're just like worth however much that is, 50 cents or whatever. But if they stop minting it, that coin increases in value. When God stopped speaking and they realized that there were no more prophetic words, they started putting high value on the scrolls of the prophets and on God's word. The third thing that happened is during this 400-year silence is that a whole bunch of other books get written. They're known as the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. We'll come back to those later. They're all written in Greek. So let's pick up the story a little bit. This Greek general, now king, Antiochus IV, tries to force Greek ways, Hellenization, on Israel. He hated the Jewish scriptures and actually tried to track down as much of the scriptures as possible and destroy them. And so now the the, the Old Testament, the Book of God, is now under threat. Further, he tries to force the priests to take a pig, which... Remember, like pig, no-go, unclean, we don't mess with pigs. He forces the Jewish priests to take a pig into the temple of God to sacrifice it, to slay it, to Zeus in the temple of Yahweh. And there's this great story where the, the Greek general, technically Seleucid, the great general, Greek general comes in and he's standing before the priests and they come up to him and they hold out a knife and they say, who's going to be the one? to kill this pig to Zeus here. And they challenged this first guy and his name was uh, Mattathias. Mattathias, And he was this older priest. And Mattathias refused to do it. And when he refused to do it, another priest stepped up and was about to kill the pig when Mattathias pounced on him and killed him right there before the altar of God. He ran off to the hills and he and his family began the rebellion against the Greeks. They were the zealots they were the, re- the, the rebels living in the hills around Jerusalem, and it was Mattathias that it was his son Judas Maccatheus, which is why we have so many Judases in the New Testament because they were named after an Israel an Israeli hero. It was his son Judas Maccabeus who is also known as the Hammer. That's what Maccabee means. The Ham- that would be a cool nickname, man. What did I could do to be nicknamed the Hammer? Probably not going to happen for a five foot seven Italian guy, but. The hammer. Judas leads the rebellion into Jerusalem, and they once and for all drive the Greeks out like dogs with their tails between their legs. They reinstitute and purify the temple, and then Judas Maccabeus sets out to try to gather as much of those books as he can. Those books that have been destroyed, those books that have been scattered or hidden or buried, he sets out on a campaign to gather as much of them as he can, And it was his collection of books that become the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. No later than the 100s did this collection of writings get recognized as the Hebrew Bible. It was later translated into Greek. You may have heard of uh, the Septuagint. And it was translated by 70 scribes living in Alexandria, Egypt. And there's a legend about them. It's not true, but there's a legend that these 70 scribes worked to translate the Old Testament, individually. And then whenever they came together, they found out that all of their translations were exact, which is a legend. But it's still kind of cool. That's why they call it the Septuagint, meaning 70 or 72. Now, Jewish tradition tradition holds that the last prophetic writings were Zechariah and Malachi, and nothing is to be added after them. Therefore, by the time of Jesus, by the time we have the apostles and Jesus enters the scene, these are the books that they studied. Those collections under Hosea and Ezra and Judas, these were the writings that Jesus studied, that his apostles lived and breathed, how they defended Scripture. The last books to be recognized in the Hebrew canon were Ecclesiastes, And Song of Songs, shocker there. But by the time Jesus is on the scene, the canon is sealed. So the question that maybe some of you guys have been wondering, can we trust that we, the Protestant Christians with our 39 Old Testament books, have the right books? That the Old Testament canon is correct. First of all, Jesus himself attests to the Old Testament scriptures. These are the scriptures that he read, that he studied. And anytime Jesus is saying, God says, or scripture says, or it is written, Jesus is referring to that Old Testament canon, those books. Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus is talking and he says, Remember, he's on the road with these guys. Jesus died, he rose again, and these guys are like trying to figure all this out. And Jesus comes and talks to him and says, Don't you realize that this was supposed to happen? I was supposed to die, I was supposed to resurrect. This is Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the law and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. These are what Jesus refers to himself, where he refers to himself. In fact, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament 300 plus times. And a couple of times they refer to Greek authors, but they never said that it was Scripture. Also, Jesus and the religious leaders often had a lot of arguments. Jesus was always arguing with people. One of the arguments that Jesus and religious leaders never had was what books were supposed to be in the Old Testament. That was obviously agreed on between them. So how do we know? As Protestants with our 39 books compared to the Roman Catholics with 12 more, and the Eastern Orthodox, which have 15 more than we do, how do we know that we have the right books? Those books were written in that 400-year gap they're called the intertestamental literature. These are written in Greek and they have been disputed forever whether or not they should be in there. There were great church fathers that believed that some of them should be. I'm going to begin with the Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, pseudo meaning false, pigrapha meaning author, means that these are books that were written with fake authors. What they would do is they would write out these very fantastic tales and then they would write the name of an Old Testament character on it to try to get people to read it. They would write, say, the book of Enoch, this guy that lived before Noah and it was written in Greek, but there was no Greek when Enoch was around. So we know, you know, like pretty safe that Enoch didn't write this. There's writings by, supposedly by um, Seth, Adam and Eve's son. There's all kinds of stuff in the pseudepigrapha There's about 50 books or more of them. They have crazy stories, they have some history in them, they have often wacko theology, and they're stamped with a biblical character. One of the examples is First Enoch, and this is just, I found fun and I wanted to give you an example, so here's First Enoch. They're pretending that Enoch wrote it, and it describes fallen angels lusting after human women. These angels are the ones who bring evil to the world in the form of magic, weapons, and sexy makeup. There you go. The second Enoch actually goes into detail and talks about levels of heaven and different kinds of heavens and stuff like that. Again, doesn't fit scripture at all. They're these fantastical books. The other one that we'll spend a few more minutes on is the Apocrypha, which gets a lot more weight and a lot of the early church fathers believe some of these apocryphal books were scripture. Apocrypha means things which are hidden or things which are unclear. Unclear meaning their authorship The history isn't entirely founded. There's sort of some dubious things involved. Uh, There is history. There's some inaccurate history. There's theology. There's some wacko theology. And there's just straight-up legends in the Apocrypha. These books are what set our Bible apart. We do not have the Apocryphal books in our Protestant Bible Some of the books are the 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which are actually really good to read for history because this is the history of that 400 years where you can find out about Mattathias and Judas and all those really cool characters. There's also a book called Judith, which is about a woman who single-handedly saves her city from these bad guys that are besieging it. There's Wisdom, wisdom, and there's another book called Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. They're very similar to Proverbs. There's also The Song of the Three Young Men, which is what is allegedly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sang while they were in the fire. So it's just like these other books, and those are an example of about 12 other books. During the Protestant Reformation that happened in the 1500s, they wanted to go back to what is the foundation of God's Word, and they excluded anything that wasn't originally written in Hebrew. Anything that was just written in Greek, the the original documents were in Greek, that were in that 400-year timeline, they excluded those books. They went back to the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible itself, that Jesus studied, the apostles studied, that stood the test of time, does not include the Apocrypha. But some of the early church fathers put weight in them, which is why you'll find them in Catholic Bibles and Eastern Orthodox Bibles as well. Protestants leave them out. And I have a list of 11 reasons. I'll give you a few of them. First, none of them were in the Hebrew canon. Secondly, many of the church fathers, the ones that, that taught the apostles, the apostles discipled them, they drew a line between Scripture and Apocrypha, and so we stand with them. The Old Testament has, um, I'm sorry, Joseph, Josephus, the Jewish historian who was born right after Jesus' death, explains that he's fully aware of the Apocrypha, and because there was no prophetic words, he deems them not equal to Scripture. The further back you look in manuscripts, the less and less apocryphal books you find. And when you get all the way back to this one guy, Melito, his list at about 170 BC doesn't have any of the apocryphal books in it. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin for the common people to read, he actually wrote a preface that these books, the apocrypha, are not scripture. The New Testament writers are aware of their apocrypha. There's two or three different allusions in the New Testament to them. And yet, although they quote the Old Testament 300 times as Scripture, they never once recognize it as Scripture. At the Council of Trent, when the Catholic Church, in response to Luther, decides that they're going to have this council, they're going to seal it in stone once and for all that the Apocrypha should be in there, there were even Catholic detractors that said that they didn't belong in there. And finally, probably the most important reason, is that the Apocrypha holds some theologies that stand against the rest of Scripture. Theology is like working to have salvation. Scriptures that talk about dead people praying for us. Things that we, we know that Jesus, according to Romans, is our only intercessor. We don't need any other intercessors. And so whenever you find these theologies that stand against orthodox Christianity, the orthodox Jewish, the Jews themselves don't include their own Jewish literature in their Bible. So with the Reformation and returning to the roots of what is divinely inspired, they left those books out. But they also do say that Martin Luther's words, these books, these are books that, although not esteemed like the holy scriptures, are still both useful and good to read. And the Anglican Church, like how they say it, they said they are useful for edification, but not for doctrine. I love the story of Judith. Go read that one. That's fun. And look up the Baroque paintings of Judith because they're hardcore and there's lots of blood spatter. So anyway, recap. God began writing the Bible himself. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and priests began to preserve the words of God. Hezekiah and Josiah contributed to the collecting the scrolls. Exile in Babylon was critical for the writings and what would become scripture. After being released by Persia, Ezra collected most of the books. Under Greek oppression, Judas Maccabee drove them out and gathered what would be the Hebrew Bible. Then it was translated into Greek for the common person to read. Whew. All right. God is good. We have something in our hands that blood was spilt over, that people fought to preserve, that endured over time when it never should have. I've got two challenges for you this week. The first one is have a Bible study somewhere in the Old Testament. Every day. For the next seven seven days, have a Bible study in the Old Testament. Begin to savor and appreciate what it is that we have that God has given us. Your second challenge is write down a verse. As you're having that Bible study, write down one verse that you find that sticks out to you, that you love this verse. Consider how you can be obedient to it, and then figure out a way to bring that verse up in conversation at some point. Because just like Moses, we're going to write it, we're going to read it, we're going to write it, we're going to obey it, and we're going to pass it on. Those three things. Write it, obey it, pass it on. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are kind, and I thank you so much, Lord, that you are here. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you preserved it for us. And thank you, Lord, that you bring it to life through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that what we remember isn't a whole bunch of history. What we remember is your faithfulness throughout history. We love you, Lord, and we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students 7th through 12th grades are welcome.